Welcome to the Partners Financial Podcast, a podcast designed for you with insights from fellow members as well as NFP and Partners Financial experts. Hi, I'm Kristen Williams. Welcome to the Partners Financial Podcast. We're rolling along with our case study series, and today I'm joined by Tim Crowley, who is the president of Focus 10 Life. And Tim is here to talk to us about a recent success story he had involving Focus 10. So, Tim, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks very much for having me, and I'm happy to share our success stories, one of many that we've had at Focus 10 over the 20 years we've been running this program. Uh, Today's um, case study. Um, involves a medical practice that had six partners, and the six partners were looking to fund their buy-sell agreement with life insurance, but some of the partners were not interested in going through medical underwriting, so they found the Focus 10 program, which delivers 10-year level premium insurance program uh, with no medical underwriting. Um, So the more individuals that are involved in the program, the bigger the benefit, This group only had six partners that they're looking to cover for a million dollars each. So in talking to the consultant on the program, we asked about other employees within the medical practice, and they came back and said, well, they had four other key employees, and they had 25 other staff members. So we looked at the 35 employees in total, and we came back with a suggestion that designed a program to give the six partners a million dollars of this simplified issue tenure level term and include the four key employees for not only key man insurance, but also some fringe benefit. And then they use the rest of the 25 employees to give us more lift. And they provided $250,000 of fringe benefit for those 25 employees. So effectively, we had six partners getting a million dollars worth of life insurance on a single actively at work question four key employees getting 250000 of key man insurance for which the firm was the owner and the beneficiary. And they also had $250,000 for their own fringe benefit. And then the 25 other staff members got a flat $250,000. So by bringing the rest of the staff in and including them, we were able to get these six employees, or the six partners, a million dollars worth of life insurance on the one actively at uh, work question. And I think the the biggest benefit for all of this was that um, 60% of the premium that they paid to cover this went to the six employees or the six partners for the million dollars. So effectively, they had to spend a little bit extra money to provide this extra benefit for the rest of their employees. But the majority of the spend was to accomplish their objective, which was to fund their buy-sell agreement for a million dollars each. So it was a very effective way to use the Focus 10 program. And it sounded like there was some interesting sort of ownership. So the doctors, who owned that million dollars? Did they have it cross-owned or was it entity redemption? So they, they, they had a buy-sell agreement. So it was, it was owned by each, each, each employee or each partner um, had the five other partners as their, their, their owners of their beneficiary. And then the, the, the four key employees, it sounded like you had sort of 250 that the company owned for key person and 250 that you let the key employees own, right? That, that's correct. And we did it we did it with two separate policies, so it was very clean. We didn't have to worry about, you know, on the upon the death looking at portions of premiums and plans. So we simply just issued four more policies for the fringe and four for the key person. 
And mm-hmm. the key person, obviously, the firm was paying for it and the firm was the beneficiary. And they did that because these employees were key to the firm. And if something happened, they wanted to use the proceeds to be able to help to replace them. So I have to say, Tim, every time I talk to you, I I get a great story, but I also learn something new about Focus 10. I didn't realize that you could take that policy and do all of those different things with it and have sort of so many different ownership structures so that it fit all of those different buckets, the buy, sell, the key person and the fringe benefit. So it's it's always so interesting to hear just how very flexible the product is. Yeah, effectively, these are individual life insurance plans. So if you're in the individual life insurance space, anything you can do with an individually underwritten policy, you can do with a Focus 10. Because all we're simply doing is delivering an easier way to obtain the policy. But once you obtain it, it has all the flexibility you know, from a trust or ownership that it would if you went through full medical underwriting. So again, you end up at the same place with the product. It's just a matter of how do you get there. And the more employees that you have and the more partners, the less likely you're going to want to go through underwriting with that many people. So um, it's a really interesting way for somebody to deliver what they're looking for um, without medical underwriting. Right. And that's why every time we talk to somebody about Focus 10, they get really excited about all of the ways it can be used. So thank you for sharing that story with us today. I appreciate the opportunity and um, we'll provide more information on how to get a hold of the folks at Focus 10 if they need uh, help in design or executing a plan. Yes. And that information will be in the launch email that you receive this podcast in. And also you can get it just by reaching out to me directly. So thanks so much, Tim. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Kristen. We are moving right through all of our case studies. So thanks for joining us today. I have Dan Cornwell who is Managing Director of NFP Up in Detroit. And Dan has an interesting story that he's going to share with us. Hi, Dan. Hi, Kristen. Thanks Thanks for uh, for inviting me. Um, so, you know, basically, the, you know, this case, it's you know, started as a, as a generic uh, survivorship case uh, for a, a couple, married couple, that, uh, you know, the, the net worth is, you know, 500 million plus. Um, younger individuals uh, than what we typically deal with. Um, but in this particular case, the interesting thing is there, there were some health issues um, and health issues that the client was well aware of. Um, and in going through the, the process to, to secure additional survivorship, um, we were informed about six months in that there um, was probably going to be a separation and there ultimately ended up being uh, a divorce. Um, so when you look at you know, the, the need going from second to die to individual coverage, uh, we had to pivot. Um, and really what we ended up leaning on due to the health issues uh, was term conversions and then also policy splits for the existing coverage. Um, and then one thing that you know we we also leveraged was was premium financing within this case. So you know term conversions were were fairly simple. Um, negotiating with two different law firms and four attorneys on the terms of the um, of the premium financing was a challenge. And then also navigating policy split provisions um, was interesting because we had, you know, split provisions that we're going to exercise with four different carriers. Um, so it, it's something that, you know, we have experience with, but not a tremendous amount of experience. And the interesting thing is a couple of the carriers, it almost seemed like we had um, more background in splits than they did. Um, so, you know, there, there were several carriers where the split needed to happen within 90 days. Um, of the the executed divorce, 
uh, or, or settlement agreement. In uh, you know one carrier, Prudential, that was interesting. Uh, you had to wait 180 days after um, that that settlement to split their policy. So it was you know a lot of moving parts with, within it. Um, you know ultimately uh, we ended up securing about you know 100 million dollars of coverage um, through through the splits and convergence. Um, we're still a little short, so the the goal is to to get another 50 uh, million of coverage um on the the individual um we've been through underwriting and and while the um the offers aren't what they were within the term conversions and the policy splits because you know most of those were preferred or preferred plus you know we do have a solid you know structure um made up of standard in, in table c rates um when we couple that with the you know premium financing that we negotiated for a good six months um, with the help of SCA and you know uh, Julian and, and, and Rothman were uh, were very helpful in, in working with their different financial institutions and finding that the right fit for the client. Um, you know the that part of it was to me I think very enlightening and also comforting for the client, knowing that you know the the insurance advisors aren't being compensated by the financial institution. Um, we simply find, you know, the, the best possible structure for the client. We started with one uh, bank and ultimately flipped to a, to another one uh, based on some some guarantees that were required by the first bank that, that, that the client wasn't comfortable with. Um, but working with SCA and their background in that market was was huge. Um, and then also, as I said before, the the two firms and, and four attorneys working on this thing. Um, along with the the counsel of of the the bank that ultimately writing ended up writing the, the premium financing, um, it, it went on for quite a while, quite exhaustive, um, and there were some changes made that you know, ultimately the, the attorneys felt their client needed, um, and without the leverage of SCA, I don't think we could have gotten it done. Yeah. Um, so in looking at it today, the the client is is very pleased with the structure we have. Um, and within the next, you know, couple of weeks, we'll probably have a decision on an additional, um, you know, fifty million of, of coverage on on him individually. So I can imagine that not only did you have to negotiate the split of the policies, but probably move them around, right? Because we don't want them in survivorship trusts anymore. Correct. So there, there were there were new trusts, um, you know, that that were put into place, and and we we did have to to move them from the survivorship trusts and into the individual trusts. Um, and then, you know, obviously the, the, you know, concern for the estate planning attorney is how are we going to actually pay, um, you know, the, the annual interest uh, on these contracts? Where are we going to find the, the ability to give that kind of money? Um, and ultimately what they ended up doing is utilizing his exemption uh, to do so. Um, there are some business interests that we will probably use to fund um, the, the annual need uh, for the, the new contracts we're contemplating because we're, in essence, um, you know, at capacity on the the, the existing. Um, so it's you know the the dynamics. So the you know that the hundred million is in a different trust than what it was as survivorship. You're correct in saying that, but then the new coverage will be probably in another entity, uh, just to make sure that we have that 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 flow of, of funds, um, the, the currency to to cover the annual need. Right, and also thank you was a good reminder that. Divorce is the only time you can split a policy, and you know. So, but you have to be, as you were, cognizant of 
when the divorce is finalized and what the different split requirements are. So that's a imagine was pretty challenging to negotiate or navigate that whole process. Without question, you know, and to me, and until you dig into the policies, I mean, you know, Prudential having a 180 day waiting period and, you know, I'm not sure if it's there as a protection uh, against, you know, somebody that gets divorced and then, you know, decides that they may have made a mistake and gets back together. Uh, but it was just strange that, you know, three of the four carriers had 90 days um, and then one had, you have to wait 180 days. Yeah. So it's, you know, just a, a, another dynamic that we had no idea uh, that we'd be running into, you know, disparities there within the, the split provisions. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast today and talking about that interesting case and all of the different moving parts that went into securing the coverage that your clients needed. Thank you, Kristen. Uh, I appreciate the time. We are moving along with our case study series stories brought to you by fellow members. Um, and today I'm joined by Greg Freeman, who is the principal of AdvisorServe. Greg has an interesting um, business transition story to tell us. So Greg, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Kristen. It's always fun to do things like this. It is. I'm excited to hear the story that you have to share. Well, we're, we've been working with a client who's a successful company moving into their third generation. And we actually work, our specific client is actually their legacy advisor because our firm works mostly with advisors uh, at, who are our actual clients, but then we work for the clients of advisors. Uh, and in this case, um, we've already been in touch with this client fund and we have funded much of their estate tax. Uh, but in last year, uh, First step out of that, we were asked to design a key man retention arrangement for their top employee uh, who's outside the family. And the ultimate design we came up with, uh, with your help, Kristen, was a bonus program funded with uh, the Penn Mutual DAVUL contract. Uh, and the employer, what we did was the employer projected a likely pattern of future bonuses, uh, which was very irregular, but it is based on performance. And after we designed that, we added a 20% increase to the minimum non-MEC death benefit, just so we have flexibility in future premiums. Uh, we also set up an employer loan for the exec so that taxes could be covered uh, in this approach, just using the employer loan, which is an additional golden handcuff. Uh, and, the, and the goal of the loan is that the employee would stay with the employer to retirement at which time the employer would be happy to uh, uh, reimburse it or simply not force the executive to pay back the loan, then forgive it. So um, all of this was something that we were able to do basically with the per with the resources we have at Partners right now. And uh, whether it's uh, you or Leilani or um, Tim McFarland, any, any number of players, uh, really help us in a case like that. Um, but what I really thought might be interesting is what happened after this. Uh, when the CFO watching this came to me and he said, you know, I've got some concerns. Um, we have a deferred compensation plan in, on the books. About 20 of us are in it. Uh, six of us represent 6 million of the 9 million of assets. And um, we're concerned right now for three reasons. Um, Reason one, plan assets are available to creditors of the company. Reason two, 
We hate 409A. Anytime somebody defers income, they have to declare in advance, no matter what their age is, when they're going to take the money at retirement. Is it a lump sum? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? And they can't change their mind after that. Uh, so 409A has been a real downer for a lot of uh, executives and deferred comp, it would seem to me. And of course, the last objection, which is pretty hard to avoid, is that all the income that comes out of their deferred comp plan is fully taxable. And we don't know where our tax rates are going to be. So that was what he asked me to talk about. Um, and we initially did an assessment, and I started heading right back to bonus program uh, they were matching 30,000, up to 30,000 of executive money. And so we could, starting now, add a bonus program in there. They could just stop their deferred comp contributions. Um, but I, um, this, I realized this case was getting a little bit more complex than I'm used to. So I actually reached out to Jim Habits. And Jim is uh, really good at designs of this nature, and in fact, came up with a brilliant way to turn this into a pretty big case. So it wasn't a $30,000 executive or deferral and a $30,000 employer match. It was going to be something much bigger. And when I say bigger, we Jim had opened the door to taking over the entire existing $6 million that had already been deferred for these executives. Uh, and converting that too to the to the bonus program, so that that six million would be free of creditors, and also uh, tax free income. Well, when you design something like this, it requires tons of iterations of spreadsheet models. Uh, you need extra legal talent. I mean, this is a pretty. Uh, for me, it was a cutting edge thing to go take over a deferred comp plan and convert it to bonus. Uh, but Jim, of course, has got talent with Greenberg Traurig um, and Rich Cyrus over there. And uh, and the company had their own very talented employee benefits attorney who uh, Rich was able to actually speak to on an equal basis. Um, and we did most of our work through Zoom. So it didn't matter that Jim was in Arizona and I was in Georgia. Um and, and and but somebody's going to ask, what about the fact that when you move six million of deferred comp to executives and a bonus plan, uh, what about the taxes there? Uh, the, don't the executives have this whopper tax bill? And um, uh, that's where probably the case turned totally in our direction because of one factor, and that was we got the employer to agree to double bonus everything. So. Uh, the math here is easy because we have $6 million and I'll use a 40% tax bracket. Um, the employer moves $6 million to the executives in the form of premium payments. The employer also gives the executive $4 million of funds for reimbursement of their taxes. So at the employer level, the employer has just spent $10 million from a tax to tax taxation, tax deductibility purposes. They recover four million of that ten in tax re in tax refunds, and the other six million they already had in the deferred comp plan, so they're cash neutral. At the executive level, same things happening: six million goes into their contracts, four million comes to them in cash, 
That adds up to 10 million. They report 10 million. They have six, $4 million tax liability. Same thing, $4 million of uh, tax paid for by the tax bonus. Um, here again, we used um, Penn Mutual. Uh, the, the diversified um, the DAPUL contract because of the, there is a pretty, still a pretty strong interest in you. Even if you go variable, you like those, those index buckets. And uh, Penn has got some pretty good approaches to the index buckets. Um, two of the three executives chose index buckets. One of them chose um, the uh, other um, separate accounts. And three more are yet to have been uh, brought through the, the whole process. But you take a breath a minute and just say one thing about this is when I started in the business, we were talking with business owners. We often had this argument about cross-purchase versus um, stock redemption. Every buy-sell we saw, and everybody was a stock redemption, or stock redemption, and we always got to talk cross-purchase. And um, and we were right. So, but here it now strikes me that every deferred comp case I run into, I'm going to ask the question: Would they be better off with bonus? And this may get a lot more doors open for us. Just to just so it's not that I'm re I'm creating a new plan, which in itself is a sales process, and we will be certainly trying to do that, writing bonus plans out. But now. Um, all of those existing deferred comp plans to me are fair game. And, and, uh, and you know, I realize, uh, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but um, it, it, this just seems like a really strong opportunity in the business market now. And I, I couldn't thank Jim Hebbett's group enough. Uh, their people were incredible on helping us with the modeling uh, Jim's models are so complex. You've got to have a uh, what's the big paper there? The uh, you know twelve by sixteen or whatever it is paper to print it on, print a spreadsheet on. But um, always responsive and really made it happen for us. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. It, it's such a great story and a wonderful way to reposition those four hundred nine eight deferred comp assets into something much more efficient. That's ends up being tax neutral to the company and the employee. So it's just a win all the way around. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, this is just a case that that we're bringing to advisors mm -hmm. and counter them because they, right. they're looking, they're looking, you know, advisors would like to, sometimes the deferred comp plan is with a competing advisor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they like to have a leg up. And uh, th this gives them that extra, extra thought. Extra yeah. Thought. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing this case with us. It's a really great idea. And I can see why you're bringing it to all the other advisors you work with. Yes. Well, it's been fun to work on it, Kristen. Yes. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Sure.